And there's so much in it. And this morning, we're going to be looking at these couple of verses that we just read. There's a lot in these couple of verses. And these verses refer to kind of situations that we've all faced. I know you've probably been there. I've been there in a situation where it's a point of life. It's a struggle in your marriage. It's a struggle in your work. It's a new chapter of life. It's something that you haven't faced before. Maybe it's a bit overwhelming as you look at it and you wonder, what do I do next? Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're at a point in your life where you just don't know the next step. You just don't know what you should do next. You just don't know where you should turn next. And often when we get in one of these spots or one of these places, we tend to go one of two ways. Sometimes we turn and we think, nobody else has faced what I've faced. Nobody else knows the struggles that I've faced in my life. Woe is me. I'm going to lose it. Nobody understands. And we get depressed and we turn inside and we put our head down and we just go, I can't do this. And we try to live life on our own in our own little shell. Hopefully we don't do that. The other way we can look at this is we can go, if we're Christ followers, we can say, look, there's someone else who's probably faced what I'm facing right now. There's someone else who's experienced some of what I've experienced. There's somebody who's probably been at the same stage of life that I've been at or that I'm at right now. There's someone who's also had little tiny children. There's someone who's had middle-aged children. There's somebody who's had teenage children, there's somebody who's had adults, they've, somebody has been where I've, somebody has had the same issues that I have had, and I need to go talk to them, and I need to ask them how God showed up in their life, and I need to ask them what it was like when God did God's work in their life, and how they learned to trust and rest and be faithful in the middle of the struggle that they were facing. And then as a Christ follower, when I think that way, I also need to be reminded that I also have a person in my life, the person of Jesus Christ, in the form of God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells me, who says, I will give you whatever you need when you need it. I'll provide what you need. There is someone that you can go to, you can always go to. But often we get wrapped up in our own little world and our own little life. And instead of going to the places we ought to go, we give up. And we stop growing. We stop trusting God. And we forget the fact that he never failed us, ever. And this morning, the verses that I want to look at, the passage that we want to talk about, brings us back and focuses us back on the fact that we have someone that we can turn to all the time who understands everything that we've ever faced. This passage that we're going to look at this morning is a transition passage. It's going from, and that's why there was the therefore, remember, if you've been with us, right, you, you asked the question, what is the, 
Therefore, therefore, right? Well, that word therefore at the beginning of this passage is telling us that this is a transition. It's a transition from the first three chapters that we looked at where we understood and we came to learn this, that Jesus is better than, remember that in the first three chapters, he's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than the Old Testament characters. He's better than Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the word of God, the promise of God to mankind, that the Messiah would come, that a Savior would come. And Jesus Christ was that person, that Savior. It was God who came in the form of man to pay the price for our sin on the cross and not to be defeated by death as all of us would be and could be defeated by death, right? Sin The strength of sin, the strength of the grave is the fact that death comes because as a consequence for our sin. It's a payment that everybody must make until Jesus Christ came and defeated death and sin. And so we were told in the first three chapters that Jesus is better than, and then Mike did a great job in reminding us that in Christ we have rest. We have rest in Christ. And it doesn't have to be a place of struggle and strife all the time. We can live as Christ followers in Christ and be at rest. And then last week he reminded us of the power of the word of God and the fact that the word of God wants to to go deep into our very beings and open us up and expose all that is wrong within us. Why? Not so that we're exposed to the world, but so that we can be healed, so that we can be made new, so that we can have rest. And so he says, therefore, in light of the fact that Christ is better than all, in light of the fact that Christ has done all of this, now I want you to understand who he is. And he starts this passage by saying, therefore, we have a, not just a high priest. The title's different. We have a great high priest. Now, you may say, why would he say that? Why would he change that? I mean, in the Old Testament, there were high priests, right? The high priest was the one who went in once a year into the Holy of Holies, and he did the sacrifice for the sins of all people, and, and, and he was the one who went before God for the people on behalf of the people. That, that was the point of the high priest, and isn't that what Jesus did on our behalf? But the difference is, is that high priest in the Old Testament had to repeat that sacrifice year after year after year and Jesus the great high priest went one time as the payment for sin and when he finished his work on the cross and he rose again the third day he was seated at the right hand of the father the throne of God and when he sat down there his work was complete on our behalf no one else needs to sacrifice because the work of God is done. So therefore, we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So this morning in these few verses, I want to I look at two exhortations and really an invitation as well that, are, that come from this passage of, of Scripture. Two exhortations, right? Expr- exhortations to us are like exclamation marks. They're like, hey, you got to do this, right? They're, 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 they're words or proclamation that grabs our attention. This is something we need to do. 
And that's what an exhortation is. And there's two of those found in this passage. But there's also an invitation in this passage as well. So here we go. We're going to look at exhortation number one found in verse 14. Here it is. Therefore, since we have great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Exhortation in that passage is this. Let us what? Hold fast to what? To our confession. Let's say that again because none of you are convinced. Here we are. Here we go. Ready for this? Let us what? Let us hold fast. Okay, one more time to make sure you got it. Go ahead. Do you notice what that doesn't say? It doesn't say let us hold fast to our salvation. Really important that you catch that this morning. It's not what he says. He says, let us hold fast to our confession. Our salvation is not wrapped up in us. You need to catch that. We've talked about this in the first three chapters, but you need to make sure you got it. Our salvation is not wrapped up in what we do. It is wrapped up in what Christ has already done. The payment of our sin was completed at the cross and at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He defeated death. He defeated sin and he defeated the grave. It was done. And so when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that work is completed by him. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of works, right? It's not what I do. It's not wrapped up in me. It's wrapped up in the finished work of the person of Jesus Christ. And so the author here writes this, inspired by the Spirit of God, and he said, look, we have a great high priest who finished his work, and he's in heaven. He's already there. He's at the throne of God. He's seated at the right hand of God. He is doing his work in heaven, and his work is keeping those who have faith in him. That's his work. That's his job. It's not mine. It's his job. And he's completing his work while he's in heaven. And then the author says this, Now, because Jesus Christ, the great high priest, is where he's supposed to be, he's doing what he's supposed to be, let you and I hold fast to what we've confessed. Now, you need to understand a few things about this word. This word confession, we look at these words often and we see them in kind of a narrow understanding. And we think confession is something that I think or a faith or something that I believe in my heart and my being. It's something, the word there, he says this, we're going to hold to my confession. The word hold there, we think of grasp. So I'm grasping on to something that I believe. But maybe a better, actually a better understanding of that word or a better meaning of that word is this. It, it's the idea of commitment to. Hold means to commit to my confession. And that commitment there is not just something that I do internally. It's not just something that happens deep down in, in my soul, although it does happen there. It happens also publicly. The idea that this word is giving us is this. It's a public declaration of something that has happened in me. So he's saying this, I want you to hold fast, grasp, and make the commitment publicly to what Jesus has already done in you. Exhortation, let us hold fast publicly to the change that Jesus Christ has made in me. Now, I want to stop here for a minute because we're living in a day and age, our culture, where everybody says this, look, you don't have to say anything about what you believe in Jesus Christ. You don't want to offend anyone. You don't want to be offensive about your beliefs. 
That's not what he's saying here. He's actually going the other direction. He's saying, you need to scream loudly about what you believe. Because what you believe changed your life for eternity. It's not this little thing that if people get it, their life's a little bit better. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, look, the confession of your faith is that you have a Savior who saved you for eternity. Does that matter? Yeah, it matters. Because if he doesn't save you for eternity, what's your option? What's your option? It's eternity without God. It's eternity separated from the one who created you. Hell isn't just about the pain that happens in hell. Hell is about the separation from your creator. The separation from the one who is the greatest, God himself. And so the author in his exhortation, it's deep here. He's saying this, look, I'm exhorting you to grasp a hold of your faith to the point that you are willing to make a confession of faith to those around you. I am different because of what Jesus Christ did and is doing in me. That's what's going on. That's my confession of faith. Now, why does he write this in this passage? Remember, he's writing to Jewish believers. This is a group of Hebrews who are struggling right now in their faith. And they want to give up. They want to go back. And he's saying, look, I know it's hard. I know you've probably lost jobs. Remember, we talked about this. This group of people, when they came to faith, they probably lost some of their jobs. Their family probably kicked them out. They live in a community where they're tightly knit. They live life together. And they were probably cast out of that community. The synagogue that they would have worshipped in like this, they come together and they know the people and they love to be together. They probably weren't allowed to go there anymore. It's hard. Life is hard. And the author says, look, I get it. I get it that it's hard but continue to make a public declaration that this is who my faith is in. It's in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That's who I belong to. He's exhorting them to live out what they have. Live out that faith. Stand in it. Stand up for it. Stand for what Christ has done for you. Stand for what you have been taught. The exhortation this morning is the exact same for us. We live in a time and a culture where everybody just wants us to shut up and God is saying just the opposite. Speak up. Speak up. Tell the truth. Live out the truth. Let them see the truth. Why? Because we have a great high priest who has completed his work and he's entered into heaven, the holy place, and he presents you and I before the Father spotless. Do you think you got something to talk about? You want to bet you do. Some of you aren't sure. Not only do we have a high priest who has finished his work, but we also have a high priest who understands all of our, temp- our temptations. Let me give you this. It's verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, but catch the last line, yet without sin. Really important. He's been... He's felt our weaknesses. That's our physical and our moral weakness. He's felt, he's felt the pain of being in a human body. He got hungry. He got tired. He got thirsty. He was disappointed. He was tempted 
in every way that we are, but yet he never sinned. And you might say, well, that's not fair. He was God. He couldn't sin. So why, why would the author put that in there? But I want you to think about that temptation, maybe from a little different light this morning, just for a minute. When you and I are tempted, we're tempted because there's evil within us, right? There's a sinful nature that draws us away. That's what James says. And things, pressures come from the outside, but also from within, and they tempt us. But I want you to think about when Jesus was tempted. He was perfect. He was holy, completely holy, completely God. And so his knowledge and understanding of evil, think of how much greater that would have been than what you and I understand. There's things that we're tempted to do. There's things that happen in our lives that are a temptation that we're not even aware of because we don't even realize how evil they actually are. But when Jesus was on this earth, when he talked with people, when he lived with people, when he walked into situations, he knew every form of evil that was in that room, that was with those people. He knew every twisted thought of the hearts of those people. So think about what he experienced in far, as far as the temptation of sin, the pressure. When we say temptation, we're talking about the pressure of sin. The difference between you and I as Christ followers and Jesus himself is this. It's like, it's like I'm going to go to construction because it's what I know, okay? It's like when you put a beam in that's going to carry the weight, let's say, of a roof, And it's spanning a, diff, a, a distance. And you put a beam in and it's not quite big enough. And the weight of the roof comes down on that beam. What happens to the beam? It bows, doesn't it? Under the pressure of the weight. That's us. The pressure of the temptation of sin. We can't handle it. We're not built big enough, if you will. Some of us go, really? Uh, We're not built heavy enough. Okay. We can't handle the pressure of the weight. But Jesus could. And when the pressure of that temptation came on Jesus Christ, he remained firm. He remained firm. And so he understands the pressure of the temptation that is happening in your life right now. He gets it. He gets it. He understands. And what the scripture tells us is this. He sympathizes with us. He sympathizes. He doesn't have to enter into it with us, but he gets it and he sympathizes. He says, I know what you're feeling. I got it. But I can handle it. I can lift it up. I can carry it. Second exhortation I want you to get out of this passage. It's found in verse 16, but here it is. Therefore, again, in light of the fact that we have a great high priest in light of the fact that we have a high priest who can sympathize with everything that we've ever faced, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Exhortation number two is this. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Say it with me. Let us approach the... Let's do it one more time. Let us... Okay, since he told us to hold firm to our confession, since we have a great high priest, then he says this, look, I get you. 
I understand. Come. It's an invitation. The exhortation, and an, they're, they're together here. He says, I want you to come into my throne room. I want you to come before me. Come, that's the invitation, come. Hey, this is a different invitation, by the way. Any other kingdom, you're not invited to come into the throne room. That's not a place where you can just show up. They do things to you when you just show up in a throne room. And God looks at it and he says, look, if you are a Christ follower, come, come on, it's open, the doors are come. Come into the throne room. And he uses this word here, he says, and come into the throne room with boldness. That's not arrogance. That's not what he's saying. He's not, he's not saying, come swagger your way into the throne room. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, you have access. You, have, you can be bold in walking before me because I have your best interest in mind. I have your best interest in heart, at heart. I care for you. I love. You don't have to come crawling in hoping he doesn't strike you dead. He has a right to. We're sinful creatures by nature. But instead he says, no, no. Therefore, because you have this great high priest who has finished his work and he understands everything about your heart, come, come boldly, come boldly before me. I won't turn you away. I won't make your life miserable. Come, come here, come to me. I picture this as a dad with a little kid and the dad's coming home and he sees the kid and he kneels down and he's like, come, right? And, it, and when the kid gets close, he doesn't turn away and say, sorry, <laughs> you were too late. Didn't do that. He says, come and he wraps him in a big hug and he says, welcome, I want you here. That's the picture. That's what he's saying. My invitation, look, I don't know what happened at home today. I don't know what's going on here, but come, come here. We'll work all that out. And he ends this with this. It's not like a special time that you can come. You say that, he says this, look, come before me so that you can receive mercy and grace. And look at the very end. When, when can we come? In the time of need. Do you know what that means? All the time. <laughs> That's what that means. When can we come? All the time. There's never a bad time to come before God. What he's saying is this, look, I know your human heart. I know what's going on inside of you. I know the difficulties that you're faced, and I know that you have need all the time, and so come boldly before my throne. Whenever you have a need, come. Believer, let me stop for a minute and ask you a couple questions. Have you been resistant to come into the presence of God? Have you believed the lie this morning that Satan's been telling you, oh, he doesn't want to see you. Your life's a mess. Have you been believing the lie that, hey, you haven't straightened this out. God doesn't, he's not going to listen to you. Man, he's mad at you. It's not what this verse says. He says, come in the time of need. 
Now, God's not going to leave my sin undealt with, by the way. He's going to deal with it. But he's going to accept you when you come. And I love what he says, when you come into his presence, what do you receive? Mercy. Mercy is what? You didn't get what you should have. And grace. He gave you something you shouldn't have gotten. And the promise in this exhortation is this. Look, because we have this great high priest who's finished his work and he understands every need that you have, come. And the exhortation is come boldly. Come and stand before your father and he won't condemn you. He'll offer you mercy and grace and he'll forgive you because that's who he is. By the way, that's why we celebrate communion. See, communion isn't a symbol. It's not something that we do hoping that God would change our heart when we do it. That's not what communion is. Communion is an expression of what God did for us. And it's agreeing with what God did with us. It's saying this, I understand that your body was broken on a cross to pay the price for my sin. I understand that your blood had to be spilled to cover the sin that I have in my life. I understand that in order for you to be the great high priest that you are, you had to go to a cross and you had to pay a price that I could not pay. And you had to do something for me that I was unable to do for myself. And you did it. And so when we take the cup and we drink of the cup and we take the cracker and we eat the cracker, all we're doing is we're admitting that we needed a Savior and Jesus is that Savior. That's what we're doing. And we're celebrating the fact that we can come boldly into the presence of God and receive His mercy and grace. This morning, believer, some of you may need to stand before God and ask for his forgiveness because you've been apprehensive to come into his presence. And before you take communion this morning, you may admit to your father, you need to look at him and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I haven't trusted you. I'm sorry that I haven't trusted that you will offer me mercy and grace. And when you start down that road, go the rest of the way and say, sorry that I've sinned against you with my, my untrust, my disbelief. And some of you need to run to him this morning and just say, Dad, <laughs> Father, thanks for loving me. Thanks for caring. Thanks for all that you've done for me this week. Thanks that I belong in your presence. Thanks that I'm invited. Let us come boldly. So this morning as we celebrate communion, let us come boldly. Let me read these words from Paul. For I have received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood and do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. In other words, you celebrate, you confess what you believe. You commit publicly that this is what I believe. I believe that Jesus is my payment for my sin and that I am a new creation in Christ Jesus because of what he's done for me. And so this morning, as we celebrate communion, would you run? Would you approach his throne boldly? Would you say thank you? And if you need to yield and you need to repent, would you do that this morning? Would you take the time to do it? The ushers are going to pass out the communion. And when they do, go ahead and take it as you're prepared, as you're ready. Let me pray with you before we sing together and take communion. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thanks for the broken body, his broken body on the cross. Thanks for his shed blood that washes my sin clean. Thank you that I have a great high priest in heaven who's completed the work that I couldn't complete, who's paid the price that I could not pay, and who's given me the ability to boldly come into your presence, washed clean, seen through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And there I receive mercy and grace beyond anything that I deserve. God, I pray that my worship of you in celebrating communion and our worship of you in celebrating communion would bring praise and honor and glory to you this morning. In your precious name we pray. Amen.